Today we wrap up our series on immigration by looking at what it is that Jesus has to say about immigration. Some of you have sensed that what we are talking about here is unique. I came across a survey last week that said 80% of people who go to church say they have never heard a sermon on immigration, ever. Despite how controversial this topic is these days, we are diving in because we don't live for ourselves or even for our family and friends. We live for God. We want to do what God calls us to do, even if it means we have to live differently from the people out in the world. So let's look at where we've been before we look at today's scriptures. We saw Adam and Eve, the first immigrants, and how God calls us from the garden to the city coming down out of heaven. Next, it was Israel leaving Egypt. They were immigrants to the promised land. Before they got there, though, Pharaoh decided to to capture and kill them with their backs against the wall with no options. That's when God split the Red Sea. God suddenly made the impossible possible. Last week, we moved from stories about immigrants to the issue of immigration What does scripture say about the topic? And we saw two things. One is the law of the land and that God calls us to follow the law. The other is how we treat people from other places. Scripture is absolutely crystal clear on how we treat others. We love them as though they were our own family, our own brothers and sisters. Now we look at Jesus, the cornerstone of our faith. What does he have to say about this topic? Hear now God's word from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Ed? I forgot. (laughs) (laughs) I do have another part to play here. (laughs) Okay. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these, then, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. And from Matthew 2, 13 through 15. Now after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, 
for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I invite you to join me in our prayer of preparation. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength. Just the other day, I saw one of my clergy friends post something on Facebook that caught my attention. Now, I almost never look at Facebook. I don't follow people. I don't read messages. Even Emily, my wife, has stopped tagging me in pictures because she knows that I am never going to see it anyways. It's just not my thing. But I was looking for something, and I saw a, a photo there, and it was this beautiful foreign land, and I thought, my friend didn't travel out of the country. Where is that? And it turns out that the photo was taken in downtown Manhattan. It was the Irish Hunger Memorial, a half acre in downtown Manhattan that is uh, transformed to look like Ireland. Now, I know a little about my family history. I'm mostly Irish, and though some family came later. My earliest relatives came to this country during the potato famine. My friend Bernie, who is Burmese, was there learning about the over one million people who died from starvation. I was learning from my immigrant friend about my own heritage. The famine, famine happened because Ireland was largely producing only one crop, the potato. And why did they only grow potatoes? Because Wealthy landowners subdivided plots of land so small that the potato was the only crop capable of growing enough food for a family on so little land. When the blight came, and it came from the United States, I may add, uh, something like half of all potato crops died, and along with it, about a million people. About one-eighth of the population died, and then another million left because they didn't want to be next so, uh, in all, a quarter of the population was gone from Ireland over just a few short years. Imagine what it be, would be like for a quarter of our country or a quarter of your neighborhood to disappear, many of them because of starvation. So, many of the Irish came here to the United States. It wasn't all sunshine and roses, though. Many died on the ships on the way to the U.S. Some were so poor they couldn't bring food with them onto the ship or afford any of the food on, that was on board. Hundreds were crammed in the hull for 40 days. It's estimated that for ships going from Ireland to Canada, about 100,000 or 30% of those traveling died crossing the Atlantic. Many, like my great-great-grandfather, landed at Ellis Island, but Irish people were not well-liked. They had no job skills and would work for lower wages than anyone else. They often lived in slums, and the children, instead of getting an education, would beg on the streets. They were a huge strain on the cities they settled in. In 1847, 37,000 Irish immigrants came to Boston, increasing the total population of the city by 30%. They didn't have money. They didn't have skills. They couldn't even speak English. It was clear they were taking more than they were given. 
Now, eventually that changed. In the 1850s, there was a political party dedicated entirely to preventing the Irish from coming to America. But by the 1860s, civil war had broken out. People's focus changed from the Irish to the war, so that by about 1900, the Irish were almost entirely integrated into society. It only took 50 or 60 years, but they got there. By 1960, an Irish Catholic named John F. Kennedy, a great-grandson to a potato famine immigrant, was elected president of the United States. So the journey of my family probably parallels many of you. Often immigrants are rejected when they first come to a country, but as time goes on, they assimilate and integrate with everyone else. Now, that doesn't always happen. Sometimes groups work hard to maintain a separate identity, but usually the longer someone is in a nation, the more like everyone else they become. But even if they don't, I think Jesus has something to say to us about how we treat immigrants. From Luke, we heard this well-known story of the Good Samaritan. It starts with a lawyer asking Jesus how to get eternal life. The lawyer is challenging Jesus. He wants to see how good of a rabbi this guy is. So he asks him a hard question. And Jesus responds with the counter question. How do you read it? What does the law tell us? The lawyer's answer is literally the same answer Jesus has given elsewhere in the Gospels. In Mark 12, Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So this lawyer is giving literally the same answer Jesus has given to people as to how to live our lives. And this answer doesn't just come out of thin air. This is a reference to the ancient wisdom of the Hebrew Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the command for you to keep in the land you are about to enter. Keep these words that I am commanding you. Recite them to your children. Bind them to your hand. Love the Lord your God. All the Jewish people would have agreed that this was the most important commandment. And if you're going to have eternal life, well, then do the most important thing. That's where we landed last week. We follow the law concerning immigration. But when it comes to people, especially those that are on the margins of society, to the poor, the widows, the foreigner, Scripture is incredibly clear. Love those people. Show them that God loves them. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, the people of God are asked to live a different way from those around them. See, Israel lived in Egypt for a while. They saw how other people lived. They saw how other people worshipped their gods. But the God of Israel, he says, don't live for those other gods. Live for me. Live the way I tell you to live. And Israel has some good moments and some bad moments. For a while, they lived hearing from God uh, whenever uh, uh, to live based on when the prophets are raised up. The prophets would even lead them in battle if the danger was great enough. But eventually, they get tired of this. They don't want to live listening for God to speak. They just want to be like everybody else. They say to the prophet Samuel, we want a king. Uh, all the other countries around us have one. We want one too. And Samuel says, this is going to turn out badly. You know that, right? This king is going to force your sons to fight his wars. He's going to take your crops. He's going to take your metal so that he can make weapons. He's going to take your daughters to cook and bake for him. He's going to tax you, and you are going to 
hate it. Do I hear an amen? Oh, just a very gentle, weak amen. All right. Uh, And Israel says, well, come on, we just want to be like everybody else. They don't want to live listening hard for the Holy Spirit. They don't want to do the hard work of discerning when God is speaking to them. They just want an easy answer. They want a king to tell them what to do. Now, I get that impulse. It's much easier to just do what someone tells you to do. This is right. This is wrong. Do this. Don't do this. But too often, that just doesn't fit real life. I was watching this TV show where a mother goes to her priest and says, I can't get my daughter to take her medication. Can you please speak with her? And the priest says, yeah, sure. So the next day, the daughter is there at church with her mother, and after the service, the priest asks the daughter about her medication. And the daughter says, yeah, the doctor said I can take it if I want to, and I don't want to, so I'm not going to do it. So the priest agrees and tells her mother, you can't make someone do what they don't want to, and leaves it at that. But the mother, she is livid. She says, you have no idea what you're talking about. My daughter is experiencing schizophrenia, And you just made it that much harder for me to help her. Israel wants to just say, you can't make people do what they don't want to. But life is so much more complicated than that, isn't it? Life is about failing and then getting right back up. It's about setbacks that turn into glorious triumphs. It's about sickness and death that leads to resurrection and life. There is No straightforward answer for the things we want and the things we need. There is just the journey and there is Jesus. This is what Jesus says. He says, Israel had a chance to follow God. They had a chance in the desert when they were journeying to the promised land, but they grumbled and complained. They said it was better when we were slaves back in Israel or back in Egypt. They had a chance when they were in that promised land to listen to the voice of God speaking through the prophets. But they said, no, we want to be like everybody else. We want a king. And even though it was potentially worse than slavery, they said yes to that crushing governmental system. They had another chance when four nations invaded and the richest and most prominent citizens were ripped from their country. Then we have two different groups. One is in Babylon. They are trying to preserve their faith in the midst of a foreign nation with very different religious customs. But they are staying pure, only marrying other Israelites, remaining faithful to the law of the Hebrew Bible. The other group stayed back in Israel. They didn't have as much money or skills, and they are really struggling. They have chosen to do what it takes to survive They marry people from surrounding countries who practice a different religion, so they are not quite the same as those who were taken to Babylon. After 70 years, the Babylonian Jews come back to Israel, but already it is clear that they are very different from each other. It is so easy to see the Babylonian Jews as the ones who did it right. They kept the law. They didn't marry foreigners. They thought of themselves as pure. And so when Jesus is asked, what is the most important commandment? He says, love God. Everyone knows it is true, but the lawyer follows up with another question. If I love God and I am to love my neighbor, who then is my neighbor? And Jesus knows how the religious ones think of their neighbor. They think their neighbor is only 
other Jewish brothers and sisters, only people who kept themselves pure, the ones who stayed behind during the exile, those Jews who married foreigners and were exposed to a different set of religious values, they aren't Jews. They are Samaritans. Jews hated the Samaritans. They weren't their neighbors. They were evil and wrong. In their mind, God hates Samaritans. Yet Jesus says, of these three people, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, who was a neighbor to the man that was bruised and beaten? The answer, of course, is the one who showed mercy, the Samaritan. Mercy says your past wrongs don't permanently exclude you from a better life. Mercy says a foreigner whose nation is in shambles doesn't require that they be rejected at our nation's border. Mercy means grace is shown whether you rejected God's offer of a better life or not. Even if you once said no to a life led by the Spirit, even if you chose the law and rules and a king to give you the easy answers, mercy says you have another chance to make it right. Your chance is right now. When you show mercy to that man left for dead in the street. You think, well, he got beat up for a reason. Best not to stick my nose where it doesn't belong. Wrong. Mercy requires that we go where we don't belong so that we can do what the Spirit would lead us to do. This is your second chance in how you act toward others, in how you respond to God. Your chance is right now. Will you take it? Will you live with the spirit at your center, embracing the creativity God has placed in you, choosing freedom and grace instead of death and loss? It's your choice. Just yesterday I was eating dinner with Bill and Vivi Ruggles. Vivi is an immigrant from Ecuador and several people from her family were visiting there were a few things I could identify as unique to her culture. One was the massive amount of food that they served. They had two tables set up next to each other, and still there wasn't enough space for everything they made. The conversation kept switching back and forth between English and Spanish. I had to jump in and out of conversations. And right in the middle of the evening, Vivi turns to me and she says, this is what it's like in an immigrant family. Different values different systems, different ways of thinking collide. And the question is, what will you choose? Will you embrace these differences? Will you choose grace amidst them? Or will you retreat into the safety of doing things the way you always do them? Finally, we recall that immigration is not about people out there even though we made the point last week that we are all immigrants from somewhere, there is an even more powerful reality we have to contend with. Matthew chapter 2 tells us that Jesus was an immigrant. So I leave you with this thought. How we care for immigrants is not just a question of your neighbor and whether you choose to see them as such, no matter their background, 
it's also a question of how you will treat Jesus. Will you embrace him? Would you treat God right? Jesus challenges us to see the immigrant not in the terms the world may use, but as our neighbor. As Jesus said, even as you do this to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you do it to me. Amen?